you can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 11 today. And actually, you need to be ready to go today because I'm actually going to take you to a lot of other scriptural references, so it's going to be kind of maybe like a sword drill, okay? You guys remember those things, the sword drills? All right, so we've got to be ready and sharp and ready to go today. But first of all, before before we get into our passage today, um, how many ever had this experience that uh, it was a new year, the new year had come, and you had decided that in your mind, I'm going to read through the Bible from cover to cover this year. You ever, you ever done that? All right. If you have, raise your hand. Come on. Come on. And then you get out one of these little things right here. You know, you see that the little the Bible little chart thing that you can mark off every time that you've uh, read a chapter and you're gun ho and you're ready to go and you start in Genesis and Genesis. Wow. You're like, OK, this is cool. I see how things were created. I see I hear about the fall. I hear about just what happened as far as the 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 Tower of Babel, the flood and all those things. Then I get into the patriarchs and you're just moving along. You know, you're you're reading about Abraham and his sons and his son. And you're like, wow, this is great. This is a narrative. And you wind up and you see that they're they're in Egypt and then comes the book of Exodus. You're like, all right, I marked all these off in Genesis and you get into Exodus. And as you're going through Exodus, you're like, okay, God has not forgotten his people. All right. He's going to draw them out. He raises up this man, Moses. Moses messes up. But then he God goes and he brings them out of the wilderness and he uses them to lead his people out. And God does some amazing, miraculous things. You're like, this is awesome reading. All right. And then you get into about Exodus chapter 20 and he comes to this thing called the Ten Commandments. And you're like, OK, I understand. We need some rules. We need some guidance and, and all those things. And then you keep moving. And all of a sudden he starts talking about things like a tabernacle. And he just doesn't mention a tabernacle. I mean, he goes into like detail. You're like, I get it. I'm not building the tabernacle. Why are you telling me all this? Then you start reading these things about priests. And it's like, man, I didn't know so much thought went into priestly garments. And, you're, and at that time, you're starting to get, I think I like the New Testament. But you, you bear through because you have the chart. And so you want to keep on going. You want to check it off. And so you get through and the, the, the narrative picks up a little bit in Exodus. But then it gets back to the actual building of this tabernacle. But you bear through it. and You get through it. And you're like, I'm done with Exodus. Then you turn the book to the book of Leviticus. You all know what I'm feeling right now? And you start getting in and you start reading about all these offerings. And then another offering. And then another offering. And then another. Then you start reading about washing of entrails with water. What? What are entrails anyway? As you make your way through this, your, 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 your desire to be reading through Leviticus, you just think more and more, I think I'm more comfortable in the book of John. And so you put the chart aside, you make your way to the New Testament, and it's a good thing. But if you're like me, how am I supposed to read about this Old Testament law? How am I supposed to look at this Mosaic law? How am I as a believer to approach this chart? How can I approach it differently than just thinking about entrails being washed with water? Is there more to it? How many of you use the law properly in my life as a believer? Well, interesting enough, in our passage here today, 
It's a very profitable passage here in 1 Timothy. Is this going to show us some ways that we as believers can use the law lawfully or, or properly? And then I'm going to add some other ways to, as we look at Scripture, of how we as believers should approach the law. But let's, let's first dig into this text. If you remember last week, Grant got us started off in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy was written to Timothy. And Timothy was being charged, being instructed by Paul that he needed to go to Ephesus and that he needed to make some very strong instruction to these people here. Because there were certain men among the church of Ephesus that were beginning to teach false doctrine. And so he says, Timothy, you've got to go. You've got to instruct these men to stop it. This was serious business. You to instruct them to stop it. Put an end to this false teaching. So we pick it up here because, see, we must realize that for being an intentional church, if we want to be an intentional church, if we want to be a, a Christ centered truth church, we have to be convinced of the need for truth in our church. And we have to be convinced of the need to guard our church from false teaching. That's what an intentional church has got to be about. And we have to know how to use the law lawfully. So we pick it up here in verse 6. It says here in verse 6, For some men were straying from these things. That's, that's these men are, are those false teachers. These things, well, what are those things? Well, look in your text. Look in your text, and what are these things? Well, you go to the verse before it. And, and what are the things that they're straying from? What do you see there? Tell me. Yeah. What was it? It's love. They're, they're, they're missing the goal. A love from a what? what? What does it say there in the text? From a pure heart. Love from a, a good conscience. You're innocent before God. A love that comes from a sincere faith, a genuine one. It's the real deal in their hearts and their lives. These guys are, are, are they're straying from these things. And they're moving away from this goal of Paul and Timothy's instruction of love and turned aside to, what does it say there? Fruitless discussion. That's empty discussion. Discussion that doesn't really have any value or worth. It doesn't produce what God would have us produce, which I believe here is also a love for God and a love for people. It says here, literally, that in the Greek word for strain is to miss the mark. That is, they have, and, and that is, they have also they have turned aside, which literally means to go off course. They have gone off the course and they've turned into fruitless discussion. It's kind of like you know how on the roads we have, and I kind of have a habit of doing this sometimes, and I'm, I'm thankful these things are here. You know those little ripples along the side of the road. I have a habit sometimes. I'll look at the uh, the radio, or and Elizabeth kind of smacks my hand when I do it because she knows that all of a sudden I might be getting over on that little ripple, and that's a sign that hey, you're you're in dangerous territory. And these, but these guys, they had gone all the way off. They ignored the ripple. They had missed the mark of staying on the road that leads to love for God from a clear conscience, a sincere heart. They've missed the mark. See, I want you to mark this down. 
If what is being taught does not land in a love for God and a love for others out of a Christ-centered dependence to do so, it's going to be fruitless. If our goal and our teaching and our instruction is not ultimately love, that is a passion and a love for who God is, and out of the overflow of a love for God, if our, our teaching doesn't overflow into love for others, there, there's something wrong with that teaching. There's something wrong with that. Now, these guys were emphasizing myths and genealogies. They were, we also, as, as we learned last week, we also see in 1 Timothy 4, 3, and 8, they are emphasizing rigid asceticism. They are, they are renouncing this idea of marriage and, and certain foods you can't eat. They are even, according to 1 Timothy 6.20, they they're, they're saying they have kind of a special knowledge of God. And the reality of all this is that it's, it's fruitless. It's not really accomplishing what Christ desires for his church to accomplish. But notice this. Notice, too, in the text here that as they do this, as they're missing the mark, talking about fruitless discussion, they're wanting to be teachers of the law. So it's kind of like they're, they're, they're running, driving along the road and they, they go over the ripple, but they, every once in a while they put their wheel back on the road just a little bit to kind of make it look like they're still on the right path. And that's what, that's what false teachers always do. They, they, they always kind of try to ground what they're teaching with a, a mixture of things. They, they try to ground it in just a little bit of truth to say, hey, you know, I'm, this is true. I mean, have you ever had those knocks on the door? I mean, you saw those people coming all the way down the street. And they come in pairs. I have. I've had this experience. I actually love it when they come. Okay. And, and they, they knock on your door. And the first thing, they're ready to open that Bible. And they'll start. And I just let them talk. Okay. And, and they open the Bible. And they'll see, see right here. And, and they'll start pointing you to something. And, and I can just see how that so deceives people. Because they're saying, here, here's the Bible. You read the Bible, don't you? Well, here's what it says. I like when they do that. Because by God's grace, I've spent a little time in this word. And I can begin to open them up and say, well, let's read a little bit more about the context here. Okay? How about you really explain to me what grace means in your mind? Because I'll tell you, take you some verses that what it really means. In fact, in all these times, they have never asked me what I've done. I had a few times where they've talked to me and they said, uh, are you a professor at Baylor? I'm like, nope. They'll ask me this. Well, you seem to know a lot. They've never asked me, are you a pastor? And I've never volunteered. But they always like to take a little bit of truth and they, they mix it in there. And that's what these guys were doing. They were mixing a little bit of the law, but they're teaching myths and genealogies and things that were, were fruitless. So these men are wanting to be teachers of the law, but look at the text says, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or what matters about which they make confident assertions. As one commentator writes, it's bad enough to be ignorant, but they were dogmatic about their ignorance. Isn't that mess? That's... They're so passionate and sure, it's like the sermon notes of one pastor who wrote on the side, and, and we all as pastors do that, we write on the side of our notes. But on the side of this pastor's notes, he says, logic is weak, yell louder at this point. <laughs> and that's what those false teachers do. They say it so emphatically, oh, it, it must be true. 
They say it so emphatically on the TV, don't they? Oh, it must be true. He's passionate about it. No, his logic's weak. Not only do these guys have an empty message, but look at this here. It appears they also have wrong motives. Notice going back to the idea of wanting to be teachers of the law. See, this, this word here, wanting, it, it, it exposes really what their desire is. That they're not so, so much focused on the goal of instruction to love God and to love people, but they're aspiring to a position. They're, they're aspiring to the things that come with this position. Honor, prestige, those kind of things, those, those attentions that it can get you. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be real honest with you here. The privilege to do what I'm doing has serious temptations with it. Serious temptations. You can come up here and all the wrong motives. You pray for us. One of my prayers is, God, God, may I come here depending upon your spirit. Remove pride away from it. And boy, it's there. It creeps up every Sunday. Every Sunday there's a thought, well, what will someone think if, about this illustration or, or this point? Or will they, will they like it or they won't? And, and, and God's like, ah, that's, that's not what it's about. You're going out there because you love me. And you want to love these people. And you want to give them truth. And you want to point them to me. I learned something a long time ago from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I didn't know him, obviously. I read about him, but I read one thing that he did. He always, he would he'd repeat over, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, before he'd get up. And I try to do that, too, because I know if I'm yielding myself to the Holy Spirit and depending upon him, then it's going to be about him speaking through me and not me. These guys in the text weren't doing that. They were wanting to be teachers of the law. And God's word is he's serious about this. James one or James three one says this, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will occur a stricter judgment. And the reason why there's a stricter, why there's accountability to what we teach is because what we teach, if we come with wrong motives, we come with wrong message. There are people who are in our hands that we're delivering truth to. And if we're giving them false messages, we can destroy lives and wreck people. You can put people in legalist bondage and, and all those things. The story is told of a woman and her child who were, were traveling across a, in a train in, in the prairies in sub-zero weather. And she was really frantic about whether or not she would get off at the right place. And, and the conductor had come and says, hey, I'm going to get you. I'm going to take care of you. When your stop comes, I will come and get you and I will let you off. Well, it just so happened that there was also this traveling salesman, and, and he said, hey, don't, don't worry, lady. I, I, I've been down this track many a times. I've been here frequently. I know every station and whipple, whistle stop, and if the conductor forgets, I'll make sure that I come and I get you and that you'll get off. Well, as things went along, soon the salesman says, hey, lady, your, your, your stop will be next. 
And while the train came to a halt, there was no, no sign of the conductor. He didn't, he didn't come. And so the salesman, uh, he comes and he says, hey, lady, this is where you get off. And, and tell you what, I'll actually help you out. And so he grabs her stuff and helps with the child and he lets her off and they get off and, and everything is dark. And they, they, she's kind of wondering, well, what, where is it? And he says, don't worry, the, people have certainly heard the train and they're going to come and they're going to get you. You'll be fine. Take care. He gets back on the train. The train moves. The train's going back down the track. And several minutes, several much time later, down comes the conductor. And he looks at the salesman and he says, where's the lady? Where's the lady at? He says, well, you didn't come back here and tell her about her stop. He says, when we stopped back there, I helped her off the train. And the conductor with horror in his mouth, in his face, he says, that was not her stop. We were just halted by a sign. That was not her stop. There's absolutely nothing out there. There's no city there. And so he rushed and he stopped the, the, the engineer and the engineer backs the train up and, he, and they begin to try to make their way back there. And as the story goes, when they come back, they find that the woman, her child, had frozen to death. And the reality is, it was all because of a salesman who gave a false message, who didn't know what he was talking about. And the reality is that on TV, on radio, in books that fill our, our bookstores, there are all kinds of teachers who are like that salesman. And they're given messages that they supposedly ground in Scripture, and they're not. And they're, roar, they're destroying people's lives, and they're putting people under things, and worrying and seeking out things that aren't scriptural. Beware of false teachers. John MacArthur gives uh, four, four ways that we can identify four false teachers. This is not in your bulletin, so write it, write it down. I'm going to give you four ways. The first one is this. Examine their understanding of Scripture. What, what do we mean by this? We mean is that we need to ask if their teaching is biblically. Is it really rooted contextually? Not just I point to a proof text in the verse or in the passage, but is it contextually accurate? That is, is what they're saying this verse means, is it supported by the rest of Scripture around it and by the whole of Scripture? Ask if what they're teaching is, is biblically or have a proper understanding of Scripture. Second, examine their goals. Do they seek love to love and honor and glorify God? Or do they pursue self-love, material wealth, or personal happiness? Does their message speak of a purity of heart, a, a good conscience, and a, a sincere or non-hypocritical faith? Is, is, that what they're, is that the goal? A third thing, examine their motives. Are they humble? Are they selfless? Another thing is, are they teachable? That is, is, are, are, is a teacher willing to learn from other teachers? Because if I don't know if, if I've learned anything, I need correction. I spend a lot of time in God's Word, and I still need the sharpening of my other brothers in, in Christ and sisters in Christ who have gone before me and studied the Word much longer than I have. Are they humble? Are they teachable? Or do they seek preeminence? Do they make themselves the sole authority? A fourth thing, examine the effects of their teaching. That is, look at those who are following them. Do their followers understand clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Do they really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they define it properly? Do they do they use the law as part of the gospel message or do they use the law to promote self-righteousness? Those are just four things that hopefully will help you because you will come across false teachers. The issue here was that these teachers in Ephesus were not using the law properly. And Paul seeks to address that, so he does this in verse 8. He wants to bring some clarity to, to the use of the law that they're misusing. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, Paul is saying, Paul's not down on the Mosaic law. All right? He's not saying that the Mosaic law is bad. A lot of times the Old Testament law gets a bad rap. But Paul's saying, no, it's good. It's good. It's, it's good because it reveals the holy character of God. We, we begin to see more clearly how holy God is. It reveals His righteous will. It reveals His pure standard for us. The law is good if it's used lawfully or rightly. So how, how that begs the question, so what is the lawful use of the law? Well, let's see what it says here in verse 9. He says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. What do you mean? There's no benefits to the law for the righteous person? Who is this righteous person? Now, I will show you later there is some benefit, but the context that he's dealing with, he's saying it's not made for a righteous person. It seems that this righteous person is the person who has already come to faith, who has already been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And that's not how the law should be being used with these righteous people. That is, the one who has come to faith in Christ, their orientation to the law has changed. And how they respond to it. Let me just show you. Now, here's where we're going to look at some scripture here. I just want to show you several scriptures. And I want you to write these down. The first one here is in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It says this. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That is, no flesh will be declared righteous in his sight. It is, he goes on to say, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and prophets, that is, righteousness comes apart from the law, not through keeping the law, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we already have righteous standing with God. We have been declared righteous not on anything that we have done, but what, because of what Christ has done in our place and for us. So God already sees us and looks at us as being righteous in Christ. Therefore, look, in verse, look at uh, Romans 7, 4. I have it up here. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you who were, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So there's a sense in which the, the law doesn't have effect on us like it once did. There's a sense to the law that we have died to it. So that you might be joined together to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. There was certain fruit that we could not bear through the law. We could not bear righteousness by trying to keep the law. It always came up short. 
So therefore, Christ gives us his righteousness by justifying us. It goes on in verse 5. Let me show you this in Romans chapter 7. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. And get this, here's the key part. Here's the key part in this verse. We have having died to that which we were bound so that we serve in a newness of the spirits. And not in the oldness of the letter, the Mosaic law. I had one of those interesting conversations. You're not expecting it. One of those conversations, someone out of the blue just asked me this question about the law. It was one of those occasions I was not ready. Matter of fact, I just had my eyes dilated. All right. And somebody, and they know that I'm a pastor, so they ask me this question. And so I get up and I look at them. My eyes are like this. You're asking a question about the law? Right now I can't even hardly see you, okay? But what, from what I took away from our conversation is this person really felt that there was this intense need that we actually have to kind of, they, they believe in Christ, but we have to kind of go back under the law in order to kind of really live out this Christian life. And I'm not saying there's not benefit in the law. I'll clarify that in a little bit. But my... my Emphasis to him is that it's not about going back to this law. It's about going forward with the Holy Spirit, who actually, because of the new covenant, he puts the law into my heart. And he enables me to live out the primary principles of the law through his presence in me. That's how I relate to the law. Not by trying to go back and manufacture these outward fleshly works, but through dependence upon God's presence in me do I try to live out the righteousness that has already been granted me in Christ. That makes sense? So when Paul comes here and he says this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, there's a sense in which the law is not for us as believers anymore. But he says there, but it is for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners from the unholy and profane. And you'll notice if you just pair this right next to the Ten Commandments, it would fall right in line to the same categories they're talking about. He says, for, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And he says, just in case you don't, you, you don't, you're not on that list. All right. He says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching or or healthy teaching. That's who the law is for. Now, this sounds very much like Galatians chapter three. So I want you to flip and we have it on the screen here for you. Look what Galatians chapter three, verse 19 says. Why the law then? That is, Paul had just made a point that Abraham came to faith. He was reckoned as righteous before the law ever came. So why the law then? Well, It was added because of transgression. It wasn't added to make us righteous. It doesn't say that, does it? It said it was added because of transgressions. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. That is, the law could not impart spiritual life to us. That's why God gave us His Holy Spirit. He goes on, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. The picture here is of being in prison, that the, that the law imprisons people, that they realize that we're imprisoned in this sin. It's all around us. I'm guilty. 
Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, under constant surveillance. And realizing everywhere I look under this law, I realize I keep coming up short. I mean, God's got these commands and, and I can't keep them. I can't do it. That's just where God wanted to have us. That's exactly why he had the sacrifices. So as they were bound and they were kept under constant surveillance like this, they were to turn and realize, I can't keep this, and I need a payment made for me. And so they would go, and sacrifices were made. Galatians goes on to say, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to who? What does the text say? To Christ. That's what it did in the Old Testament. It kept pointing to them and saying, you need a Savior. You need a Savior. You need a Messiah. You need a Christ. That's what the law does. And these messed up teachers were using the law for their myths and genealogies and a bunch of prittle prattle about all this stuff and they were missing it. They were supposed to be using the law to point people to Christ. Not fruitless discussions. The law is like a holy straight edge. When I was in Missouri, I tried to put a door on our on our on our our study. Anybody knows my handyman skills? This is this was not a good idea, but I did. I got the door out and I measured it and I saw how much I need to take off. And uh, I think I even drew a line and then I got my circular saw. Out. I had bought one at Home Depot. Like, whoo, I got I got a tool, you know. So so, so I put it down there and, and I, I started doing it and I didn't know what I was doing. But I, I, there was a line. And I tried to go along it. And guess what? I went along it. OK, but then then I, I said, well, let's see how I did. And so I got the straight edge of my ruler and I put it down there. I didn't do good. A line doesn't have waves in it. See, that's what the law does. See, I learned as I laid that measure down, one, I really didn't have the right tools to do this, okay? I really don't have the skills to freehand a cut. And see, that's what the law does to us. It puts a measurement down there, it puts a straight edge down there, and it tells you, you don't have the skills or the tools to live out the righteousness that God and His holiness demands. You need someone who does have the skills and the tools, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's who you need. See, that's how the law is to be used. Paul makes this very clear in verse 11. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. He's saying, guys, you can't be using the law and using about a bunch of nonsense The purpose of the law was to be used in conjunction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's to be used with. It's to be a guidepost of sorts. That says, you're a sinner, look to a Savior. You're a sinner, look to a Savior. That's what the law is to do. It's to be used in conjunction with with the gospel. See, the the law and the gospel are really not an opposition to each other. They're actually used to complement each other. 
One is to point you to the realization of your sinfulness. The gospel is to point you to the good news that God in his love has paid the price for this sinfulness. They're to be used together. This is an important application for us as believers as we present the gospel. Because too many times there's a, there's a temptation to minimize in our gospel presentation because we don't want to offend. We don't want people to feel bad. We, we minimize and we overplay God's grace and His mercy and forgiveness. And we want to play that. We want to play that. We want to share that. But not too soon. First, we've got to help people realize what the law was pointing to, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Because how can you understand your need for a Savior if you don't understand the depths of your sin and need for one? How can you understand and appreciate the grace of God if you don't understand how undeserving of the grace of God you are? You can't. So we've got to use the law to be a guidepost to point people to Christ. Well, how do you do this, Matt? How do you do this? Well, one way I do it is I share with them that God wants to have a relationship with them, that he loves you and he cares about you. But I've got a few other things I want to share with you. There's bad news and there's good news. And because I like to get bad news over, let me share the bad news with you. First of all, the Bible tells us that we're all sinners. And I put myself right there with them. We're all sinners. If they have trouble comprehending what that is, I might just list off some of the commandments. And they'll, and they'll say, well, you know, I've never, you know, really had adultery with someone. And then I, so then I go, I flip to my Jesus card and I say, well, you know what Jesus said about this? He says, if you have adultery in your heart or if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And I tell him I'm with him. I've been there. I've had lust in my heart. And then I move on and I tell them the rest of the bad news, just like the, the Old Testament begins to, to tell us, for the wages of sin is death. There's death that comes. There's destruction that comes through sin and not meeting God's righteous standard. I let them sit in that. But then I say there's good news. Because God demonstrated his love for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He does love you. He loved you even while you're a sinner. And then I tell them the even better news that you can have this free forgiveness of, of sin by putting your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not keeping the law, lest any man should boast. See, that's what the law did. It left them thinking, man, I can't boast. I can't meet this standard. I need a Savior. That's what the law does. And that's how you and I should use the law. We should use the law as a guidepost to point people to their need for Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, a few minutes I've got left. So what do I do when I'm learning from the law? What do I do when I go back to that chart, Matt, and I'm, I'm reading through that how, how, do I, how do I relate to, to that law now? Is it, is it not of any worth or value to me? And I say, no, it, it is of value to you. It says there in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness so every man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good deed. It, it's profitable. There's profit in it. 
So, so do I need to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament? No. That was settled in Acts chapter 15. When, the, when the, 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 the apostles and the elders and the church council there, they decided that, you know what, as some were trying to force these Gentiles to, to become Jewish, to be circumcised and observe the Mosaic law, they said, basically they said there's no need for that. Colossians chapter 2 makes it very clear for them. This is, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which were a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You have to be judged by those things. Now, if you want to do them, if you want to keep the feast, have at it. Okay, I've actually I've taught through the feast and they're good. They're of value because they point to who? Christ, who is the substance of those shadows. So, Matt, what, what do I do then? What, what do I do with this? The moral aspects of the law? Let me just read you real quickly here. Follow along with me in Romans eight. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, okay? Because we've been made right in Christ, or actually we've been declared right in Christ. Verse 2 says this, for the law of the Spirit, there's a new law, get this, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what the Mosaic law did. It said, sinner, you're going to die. But there's a new law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What, what requirement? Well, God still desires for us to pursue holiness. But he's just saying, you can't be holy in and of yourselves. That's why I've given you my presence through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you can start living out the law, the goal of Paul's teaching, love, love for God and love for our fellow man. But according, look what it says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, but according to the Spirit. That's how we live out the requirements of the moral law. So here's what you do. Okay? When you go to the Old Testament and you read through the Mosaic laws and then you start getting bogged down there in Leviticus like, oh, man, what am I going to do with this? You let that be a guidepost for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of the spirit, which is in you. That is, when you go and you open up the, 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 new, the Old Testament, you're reading through and you're, I want you to meditate on it and read it. But at the same time, go, you know what? My justification my sanctification comes through the work of Jesus Christ. When you start reading through the Old Testament and you see all these different requirements and you see all these things that, you know what, I couldn't do. I've broken these. You go, you know what you do? You say, yes, but, but, but Christ died in my place for these. He's given me my spirit that so I can even begin to be able to fulfill these aspects. When you see all those sacrifices, and I want you to read it and meditate on it, and let's know this. Know that there was one sacrifice that was made for all time, that took up all those sins for us, that made a substitutionary atonement for us. That is, let the law point you to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When you get in there and you see all these things about a priest, you just remember there was a one priest, a perfect, one perfect priest, and that he mediates for us for eternity 
Let that teaching about the priest preach you to the point you to the priest of Christ. When you see a talk about a tabernacle, you remember this. All right. You read on it, you meditate it, and you let the talking of the tabernacle point you to the reality that God has chosen the tabernacle in you who believe. That is, he's made you a temple of the holy God as he's taken up presence in you. And as you read the law, you realize that you live the law through dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That's how you use the law. Lawfully. Amen. Dear God, we thank you. We praise you, God. For you are an awesome God. You're a God who loved us so much. You loved us so much, Lord, that you were willing to tell us about our sinfulness. You were willing to lay it out there for us. To show us how holy that you are. And show us how far we are off. But Lord, you didn't stop there because you are a God who is relational. And you want relationship with us. And so you made a way of salvation for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And oh God, we thank you. And we praise you. Lord, empower us as believers. Help us to be believers or yield ourselves continually to the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. That we might begin to live out holiness that you produce in us through your presence in us. Lord, I pray for those who are not believers. I pray today that your Holy Spirit might convict them of the reality of the sin in their life, help them realize that there is a penalty to be paid, and that's death, but also help them realize the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's died in our place for our sins, buried and is risen again. And if we put our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, We are forgiven, and we are given relationship with you, God, who is holy and loving and gracious. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen.